I believe I've shared this story before, uh, so forgive me if, if you've heard it. But I want to tell you the point in my uh, courtship with Abby where I knew this one was, was different. Uh, to understand the story, you have to understand that my life as a bachelor uh, was pretty much ordered around my love for sports in general and Kentucky sports specifically. So like when the schedule would come out, um, first thing I would do is I'd put those dates on the calendar, every game on the calendar. Those are set in stone events on the calendar and then schedule and order everything else around them. Okay, I'm dating Abby. It was a beautiful Saturday in the fall. And we find ourselves at a pumpkin patch, picking out pumpkins to carve together. And I get a text message uh, from one of my buddies with just one word. Unbelievable! Exclamation point. And I texted back, unbelievable what? And he texted, that play. And then it hit me. Kentucky was playing one of the biggest games of the year, and I had completely forgotten about it. My entire life... My entire life up until that moment, there is nothing that could have gotten me to miss that game, let alone forget that it was taking place. And yet here I was trying to find the perfect pumpkin to carve with this girl who is in my life all of a sudden. And so I look at my phone, I look at her, and I had this thought, "Uh uh-oh, this one's different. Something has happened. And the reason I know that is because this should never happen. There is one and only one thing that could take something that previously was inconceivable and make it seem natural, normal, only love. I was in love. This is what we have before us this morning. This woman does something inconceivable. But it seems so natural to her. Something absolutely crazy, but as they say, love will make you do crazy things. And we're going to look at it in two ways. Reckless love and precious love. Reckless love, verse 6. Now when Jesus was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, a woman came up to him. Now before we even get to what she does... You just need to know that her very intrusion into the story itself is an outrageous act. Matthew wants us to see that. He gives us the specific detail that Jesus was reclining at table. Uh, Culturally, that meant that um, this is completely off limits to women. Once the men recline at table, it is only man time, except for women to come and uh, serve the men as they feasted together. But in the most unbecoming and crazy act, this woman barges in on the men. And then what she actually does is even crazier. A woman came up to him with an alabaster flask, a very expensive ointment, and she poured it on his head as he reclined at table. Now we know from Mark's gospel that the ointment is nard, which was the finest oil of the day. So Matthew is right when he labels this very expensive. In fact, that's probably an understatement. She has bought an entire flask of it, which would be worth about approximately 300 denarii. In first century Rome, a typical salary was one denarius a day. So we are talking about an entire year's salary in this flask. Now, 
It would be impossible for someone like her to save enough to purchase something like that, to save up that much. So this is probably a family heirloom. Um, this, is, this is how they did inheritance back in the day. These are the ways they passed down inheritance. This is probably inheritance passed down to her. So although, although it's incredibly costly, obviously, to her and her family, it was probably viewed as priceless. This is probably an alabaster flask uh, that has been passed down through the generation as the fortune of the family. Priceless item. She walks up to Jesus, and she doesn't perform the traditional anointing in that day, which would be something akin to the way we practice baptism, where she would have sprinkled a little oil on his head. She breaks her family heirloom and pours the entire treasure over his head. This is crazy. Imagine dumping out your entire net worth while also destroying your family's most precious possession in one act. On the surface... It is utter foolishness, which is exactly how the disciples respond. Verse 8, when the disciples saw it, they were indignant. Uh, It's a strong word in the Greek. They were furious, saying, why this waste? For this could have been sold for a large sum and given to the poor. Now admit it, there's part of you that is with the disciples in this, that thinks they have a pretty good point. Look, you want to give your inheritance to Jesus? That's beautiful. That's great. That's noble. But do so responsibly, right? Sell it and do with it what Jesus would want you to do with it. Give it to the poor. Don't dump it on his head. What could possibly lead her to do something so reckless? Only love. Only love can compel an act like this. Only love can cause someone to take their greatest treasure and pour it out like it's nothing. This is not duty. This is delight. This is not obligation. This is adoration. This isn't religion. This is rapture. And unless you are likewise in love with what she is in love with, you will never understand what she is doing here. This story does not make sense to anyone who is not in love with Jesus. Even the most devoutly religious cannot make sense of this moment because conventional religion follows the line of reasoning on display in the disciples' response. Religion is always pragmatic, rational, defensible. Sell the oil and do something noble and virtuous with it, like feed the poor. Don't just waste it like this. But those in love with Jesus see things differently. Please understand that this is very unique to our religion. This is very unique to those who call themselves followers of Jesus. Something strange happens to us when we are born again, as Jesus calls it. Something strange happens, and what happens is we fall in love, don't we? Theologically, it is called regeneration. Experientially, it feels like we have fallen in love. Now, when I say love, I don't mean eros, the the Greek word for romantic, erotic expressions of love. When we think of the highest expressions of love in our culture, that's what comes to mind. But the love I'm talking about is agape love, the Greek word given to the highest expression of love 
that which captures our hearts, consumes our minds, determines our wills, in short, your obsession. But here's the thing. Though we are talking about agape love, when agape love is expressed, it often comes across like eros love. Meaning, those in love with Jesus sound like they have discovered the lover of their souls. Consider our Old Testament reading, for example. Let me do something. Let me read our Old Testament reading again, but let me substitute Abby for God in our reading. And tell me if this doesn't come across as a beautiful love letter to her. Oh, Abby, you are my love. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. Because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. I will bless you as long as I live. My soul will be satisfied in you as with the richest of foods. My mouth will praise you with joyful lips. I remember you on my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night, meaning I can't stop thinking about you. In the shadow of your wings, I sing for joy. My soul clings to you. When you love a letter like that, This makes you blush. And yet it's an inspired psalm sung to God. And it's not an isolated one, by the way. This type of language toward God is all over the Bible. We take it for granted, but this is the way the saints speak to their God. In fact, Song of Solomon is in your Bible. What's that one doing there? You know our hermeneutic, the way we interpret Scripture. Every story is the unfolding revelation of Jesus. Jesus is the true and better Moses. He's the true and better David and so forth. Well, what are we to do with the awkward song of Solomon book? I'll tell you what we are to do. We are to view Jesus as the true and better Solomon, the rapturous lover of our souls. You don't agree with my interpretation of that? Too scandalous for you? We'll take it up with the Apostle Paul, who after giving instructions to husbands and wives in Ephesians 5 says, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, but I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. A man and a woman leaving their parents and clinging instead to each other. That's the marriage vows. That's the covenant. And then it says, the two become one flesh. That's the consummating act of marriage, where quite literally two fleshes become one in the most intimate ways, and you know what I'm talking about. And then Paul says, I've got a profound mystery for you. That is but a picture of Jesus and his people. So like marriage vows, we perform the sacrament of baptism one time. One time. I covenant, belong to Jesus. But the two becoming, the two coming together to become one flesh is a repeated act of intimacy within marriage. And so our other sacrament, what we call communion, we repeat weekly, trusting that discovered within is the deepest levels of spiritual intimacy with our Savior. So love for Jesus is agape, not eros, and yet eros might be the closest way to illustrate what happens when a soul falls in love with Jesus. And that's what's going on here. This woman is in love. Her extravagant act testifies to her extravagant affections. Simply put, she can't help herself. 
because love will make you do crazy things. But more fascinating to me when I look at this passage is not necessarily her act as crazy as it is, but Jesus' response to her act. Jesus does not shy away in the least from receiving her excessive, extravagant love. In fact, though we view it as reckless, Jesus views it as precious. Let's watch Jesus respond. We've seen reckless love. Let's now look at precious love. Verse 10. But Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why do you trouble the woman? For she has done a beautiful thing to me. Do not think that choice of words is coincidental. He calls it beautiful. The Greek word there is predominantly translated good. But within its range of meaning is beauty. Beauty sometimes is found. Well, almost uniformly, translators believe that in this instance, the Greek is being used with that more affectionate language of beauty. Jesus doesn't say what she has done is noble. What she has done is good. What she's done is right or commendable. He says what she has done is beautiful. Meaning, he is delighting in this woman, admiring her, finding pleasure in the beauty of her love. And then look at verse 11. For you will always have the poor with you, but you will not always have me. What a fascinating verse from Jesus. And here's why. I think we can all agree that Jesus cares for the poor. That may be what he is most known for, his love for the poor. In fact, it would, it would be easy to make the case that he loved the poor most of all. And yet here he seems almost callous toward the poor. The poor, you're always going to have them. They're always going to be around. If you want to help them, you can do that anytime. I'm here now. On the surface, this seems maybe arrogant. He has placed himself above what he himself has designated as his priority, care for the poor. He believes that oil carelessly poured over his head is a greater act than using that fortune to provide for the poor. That doesn't just seem arrogant. That seems immoral. Because didn't he himself say the greatest commandment is to love your neighbor as yourself? Actually, no, he didn't. He said that love for neighbor is the penultimate commandment, the expression of the greatest commandment. There is one commandment greater, one love that is higher. Thou shalt love. Don't miss that. Not thou shalt obey. Thou shalt believe. Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. That is the first and greatest commandment. And Jesus sees this commandment fulfilled in this woman's act. He sees love. Heart, soul, strength, mind, love for him. And he loves it. Here's the point. In placing himself above care for the poor, he has placed himself as the highest importance. Listen, we can all agree that caring for the poor is the greatest ethical concern. There's disagreement of the best way to do that, but everyone agrees caring for the least is the highest virtue. But not Jesus. Jesus sees one thing more important than love for the poor, and it is love for him. And the point is that if we should love Jesus 
more than we should love the poor, then what should we not love Jesus more than? And the answer, of course, is nothing. You must love Jesus more than your career. You must love Jesus more than your money. You must love Jesus more than your influence. You must love Jesus more than sex, more than comfort, more than vacations, more than entertainment. You have to love Jesus more than your spouse and more than your children. You have to love Jesus more than your desire for a spouse and desire for children. You are to love Jesus more than theology about Jesus. You are to love Jesus more than ministry for Jesus. You are to love the Lord Jesus with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and all your strength. Which presents a problem. Anytime you get into the arena of love, things get really complicated. Because our love is not something we can control. Instead, it controls us. If Jesus demanded our obedience, this is something we could produce for him. If Jesus said, you have to say these prayers, you have to do these certain things, then this is something we could self-produce. But Jesus is demanding our love. And this is something you can't produce. Love is not manufactured. Love is captured. It's not like I couldn't have gone to the pumpkin patch on Saturday afternoon before I met Abby. I could have gone and begrudgingly missed the football game to pick out pumpkins. But the whole time, my heart would have been wishing that I was on the couch watching the game. I'm going through the motions of the pumpkin patch, but I'm not in love with the the pumpkin patch. I'm still in love with football. How is it possible to actually prefer the pumpkin patch over Kentucky football? A greater love must capture my heart. My love for Kentucky football has to get commandeered by a greater love. And therein lies the essence of the gospel. The Savior who demands our love will at the same time capture our love. We love because he first loves us. The passage takes a cryptic turn in verse 12. In pouring this ointment on my body, she has done it to prepare me for burial. Whoa, way to to kill a beautiful love story there, Jesus. Here's what he's saying. He's saying it's my turn now. Out of the excessive love for Jesus, she has poured out her costly gift. Now, out of excessive love for her, he's ready to pour out his costly gift. And that day... The dead were covered with perfumes and oil before their burial to mask the smell of decay. And Jesus says that her oil is anointing his body for his death and burial. This act is the preparation for the cross, which is days away. And by the way, this is so much oil. This is so much perfume poured out over him. He probably could still smell it hanging on the cross remembering her love as a motivation for his love for her. She breaks a priceless family heirloom, but nothing compared to my body broken for you. She pours out the riches of its contents, but nothing compared to my blood poured out for you. And it would be very easy to say to Jesus what was said to this woman in our passage, what a waste. Your body broken, son of God, your body broken, your blood poured out for a sinner like me. What a waste. 
And Jesus would say, you don't understand. I can't help myself. I'm in love. And love makes you do crazy things. Yes, even this crazy cross. So sinner, Jesus' body was broken for you. Jesus' blood was poured out for you. And when I say you, the person I have in mind is you. See his love for you, and may it then capture your love for him, maybe even for the first time. Or for many of us, perhaps your love has grown cold. Perhaps you have forgotten your first love. Little numb, little cold, little indifferent. Not as it used to be, not as it ought to be. Perhaps you have been lured away by false loves. Maybe it's the thing I had you look at last week. The thing that has you enslaved, chained, bondage. You know what Augustine, St. Augustine would call that bondage? Disordered love. What is bondage? What is addiction? What is idolatry? It's messed up love. You're in love with something that is not worthy of your love and it's killing you. And you want to break free from it, don't you? You want to sacrifice it at the feet of Jesus like this lady in our passage. That's not going to happen by willpower. Because love is more powerful than the power of the will. The only thing that will shatter those chains is a stronger love. But the problem is that love isn't something you can just conjure up. And so the answer, as we look toward the season of Lent and Holy Week that is upon us, the answer is to return to his love for you and let it once more inflame your love for him. That's what I'm praying for us this season of Lent. That's what I'm praying for us this Holy Week coming up. Let's behold again our first love, shall we? To that love that first captured our heart. Love will make you do crazy things. Well, let's see the Son of God do something crazy. My body broken for you. My blood poured out for you. My goodness, he must love you. Oh, that that love would inflame a love within us again for our first love. Let me pray. And so, Lord, that is my prayer as we look toward Palm Sunday and Maundy Thursday and Good Friday and flowers and trumpets and empty tombs on Easter Sunday, Lord. I just pray for our congregation that together we would be in a season of remembering our first love. But Lord, we can't manufacture that, so we have to have our loves captured. So even now, in this act of communion with you, may we remember our first love by remembering your love. Oh Lord, we do love you. Increase our love. In Jesus' name, amen.